You're listening to TIP. So if you take lots of risk on stock market, you lose money in the end. And that goes against anything we've learned in finance, because there it means that higher risk gives lower return. So there's an inverted compensation of risk. On today's episode, I'm joined by Pim Van Fleet, who's the head of conservative equities and quantitative equities department at Robeco. Pim specializes in low volatility investing, asset pricing, and quantitative finance, and is the author of numerous academic research papers and the investment book, High Returns from Low Risk, A Remarkable Stock Market Paradox. During this episode, Pim explains what factor investing is, why factor investing works, what the best way to get exposure to factors are, why some factors have performed poorly over recent years, what factors he thinks are most relevant going forward, what a low volatility investing strategy is, and how investors can use this strategy and get higher returns by taking less risk, and so much more. I also wanted to let you all know that last week I did a whole mini episode on what factor investing is, which is episode 365. So if you haven't already listened to that, Maybe give it a listen before this episode as I dive more into just the basics of factor investing, which might be helpful before listening to this conversation with Pim, where we dive more deep into the strategy. This was such an incredible conversation. I know that I learned so much and I'm really excited to share this all with you today. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Pim as much as I did. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Pim Van Fleet. Pim, welcome to the show. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Pim, thanks so much for joining me today all the way from the Netherlands. I wanted to have you on the show because I'm such a big fan of your work. You are a widely published author in academic journals. You have exceptional work on quantitative strategies and factor investing strategies that I'm just really eager to dive deeper in with you today. First, to start off, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you do at Robico and what your main areas of expertise are? My name is Pim van Vliet. It's a Dutch name, working for a Dutch asset manager called Robeco. We are pure play, so doing asset management only since 1929. So this, we also have the oldest mutual funds running in Europe. I'm responsible there for quant equity investing, which is about $70 billion in AUM. And for that, we use a rules-based systematic approach using quant factors and signals. In order to set the stage for today's discussion, I think it'd be helpful to start off with you kind of just explaining what factor investing is for our listeners that don't know, and what is the empirical rationale behind why companies with exposure to these certain factors have historically generated higher expected returns over the long run? Maybe going a bit back on uh, my background. So I have a PhD in, uh, in finance. And it started as a master student where I stumbled on an article saying that if you systematically buy stocks which have a low vol, a good value, profitability, momentum, 
you can beat the market. And I was uh, young and uh, eager and I was like, can it be this easy to beat the market? Because we're all trained in that markets are pretty efficient and it's not that easy. Yeah, I use those factors, these uh, company characteristics in my PhD. So I continued to see, could it be maybe that these alphas are not real? Maybe it's downside risk, it's something else. Because if markets are inefficient, this has huge implications. So I studied, uh, spent four years of my life. The answer was a little bit. There's some tail risk in some of the factors, but at best a partial explanation, which means there is alpha. And then I went to the industry, to Robeco, where I am still today. 17 years later, I found out that these factors can be turned into real-life strategies and you can harvest them in practice. Now, then the question, your question is, yeah, why do they work? So the, the first question is, do they work? Because, yeah, is the evidence strong enough? There is global evidence for factors to work. There is US evidence. It works within sectors, cross sectors, within countries, across countries. So the evidence is pretty overwhelming. Interestingly, on that note, we also did an out-of-sample going back to the 19th century to test factors again they work so that means that the chance that it's just noise or, or data mining or p-hacking is extremely small so that's a good thing but then the second question is yeah how can these alphas uh, be there if it's not risk what is it if it's not risk it's not data mining it must be behavior or other explanations so then you go to behavioral finance to think about why do these factors give you such an alpha and behavioral finance really gives good answers to that question so for, in general, our behavior has been pretty constant over time. And as humans, there's famous work by Kahneman on, uh, on psychology. As humans, we're much driven by emotions, which is often good. But when it comes to investment decisions, it's not always good. These emotions, when they relate to factors, are usually overreaction and underreaction combined with overconfidence. I would call these the three big explanations for why factors work. The question is also, how will this go forward? I think and we believe that these factors, these explanatory factors have been even increased recently. So I'm curious on the piece where you said the risk-based argument. So I'm pretty familiar with that, where one argument is that these factor premiums work because they're riskier. So are you saying that that is actually an outdated argument? Yeah, the thing is, anything you want to harvest, so going for factors is not risk-free. Yeah? So there is variation in returns. When I talk about risk, I talk about more the academic notion of systematic risk. So that's in a CAPM world, in an efficient market. There's only one or a couple of priced risk factors, which is market risk, maybe some liquidity risk, and that's it. It's not related to death or distress risks. Pharma friends, for example, they say there's a value premium and it might be distress risk. So they say it's a risk premium, and then they fakely say that it's distress maybe. But this research is falsified. So the, the counter arguments are that value, for example, is not a reward for risk because if you take out the distressed companies from a value strategy, so the ones which do have higher risk, you still get access to the value premium without higher risk. But to clarify, if you enter a quant strategy, there is risk involved and that's more relative risk. Yes, because you deviate from the market, you can have periods of underperformance and periods of outperformance. But it's not systematic risk, it's a specific risk you enter in any active strategy. But that cannot be the academic or the theoretical explanation for why something works. Because there are many, many other strategies. For example, if you take the opposite of a quant strategy, so you not take a low vol value momentum stock, but you do the opposite. Then you also get risk. You also deviate from the market. And then you lose money. 
it's not that if you take risk and deviate from the market that you will get a premium for that. That's not how risk works. It's not like karma. Maybe it's good to explain it with if you enter the streets with uh, blindfolded, you take lots of risk. Or when I want to become an influencer on uh, yoga and uh, I don't know, biological food, I take risk because I don't know what I'm doing. But it's not that you get rewarded for that. And when it comes to investing, some people say, hey, I take risk. So there must be a reward. The answer is no, that's, that's not the case. Only in exceptional cases, when you really know what you're doing, like with equity market investing, you, get a, you take risk, but you also get a reward for that. And the same with some active strategies. You take a risk and then you might get a reward. Most cases, you take risk, you don't get the reward. And that's an important lesson also for starting investors who think that risk is like karma, you take risk and then you get a return. That's not the case. So a lot of our listeners are well familiar with value investing and the value premium is maybe one of the most well-known factors. Can you talk a bit about what the difference is, though, between picking stocks, being a value investor versus implementing a factor-based approach? Maybe it's good to uh, elaborate on another factor, which is less well-known in, uh, among investors, which is the low volatility uh, approach, the low volatility factor, which clearly is not a risk factor because you get less risk, but you get a higher return. So that, by definition, cannot be a risk factor. That's the most clear example about what we just discussed about risk being priced or not. With value companies, you systematically buy cheap stocks and you don't buy expensive stocks. With low vol investing, you systematically buy stocks which have a low beta or a low volatility or a low idiosyncratic volatility, as you just mentioned, because idiosyncratic volatility is not priced. Volatility is also not priced. Beta is not priced. In fact, it's even negatively priced. So if you take lots of risk on the stock market, you lose money in the end. And that goes against anything we've learned in finance because there it means that higher risk gives lower return. So there's an inverted compensation of risk. And that's, for me, still amazing that that's the case on such a large scale. And the reason for that is that investors tend to be overconfident. If you, stock pick, if you become a stock picker, you tend to buy high vol stocks, which move a lot. But if everybody thinks they are a good stock picker, on average, we all think we are above average, but that's not the case. Then you drive up the prices of those risky stocks and you overpay for it because of your overconfidence. It's collective. And therefore, uh, these stocks do very poor. It's like the lottery. If you buy all lottery, stock, all lottery tickets, you will win the million dollar for sure. But you lose money because you know the lottery company, they make money. And it's the same with stock investing. If you buy all follow, the most volatile stocks, all of them, you will have the next Amazon for sure, because that's of, often where those growth companies can be found. But you will also have so many stocks which don't make it and lose out that on average, and that's with factor investing, it's on average. So you have to do it on great scale and great breadth, then you lose out. So then you start to build into factor investing, as you said. So value investing is well known. So you systematically buy cheap stocks, which go for low multiples high dividends, low PE. The second thing is with risk, then you add a risk component. You say, oh, I will also want stocks which are systematically less risky. Then you already have two factors for which you can screen your universe. And then it starts to build out where you also then add momentum, which is also a common factor that's playing sentiment and playing underreaction. And that's how you start building a multi-factor approach. It can be defensive if you add low vol to it. And then 
if you apply this in a systematic and rules-based manner, and you diversify across like 200, 100 stocks, so not just picking one or two or 10, then you will get something which we call a quantitative factor-based strategy, which, which in the long run is able to beat the markets. I want to touch on your low volatility strategy more in detail in a little bit because I want to break down a few more topics first. A lot of our listeners pick individual stocks. And so you're talking about how to apply these certain factors. So first, I kind of want to go back to the factors. Fama and French popularized their five-factor model, which includes market risk, a relative price, size, profitability, investment. They didn't recognize momentum, but that's also one that is widely recognized, I guess, between academics. But I'm just wondering, which factors do you think will perform best going forward or you think are just more relevant going forward? So Fama and French have their first a three-factor model that expanded to five. So the, th- the three factors, you can say that's market, uh, the equity premium. I think most of us believe in that, although the outlook for that tends to be somewhat weaker after an extreme good decade fueled by ultra-loose monetary policy. And that's ending. So the first equity factor is maybe less strong going forward than it was. Then there's the second factor, it's the size factor of Fama French. The evidence is mixed, as I said. If you slice and dice and you have clean data, you look across countries and it's mixed. If there is a premium, it's a compensation for risk. So it's, it's one of the weaker ones. Then you go to value. We just discussed uh, well-known value is back. Eh? It had a tough decade, but the last two years is strong again. And the value investors stayed in and now they're rewarded. And then uh, Farmer Friends added uh, two factors, as you mentioned, profitability and uh, investment. These are loosely labeled combined as quality. They don't call it quality, but then you bring it more narrow to quality. Yeah, that's a good factor. It also relates to underreaction of investors. A company is doing great, but they, people think, yeah, it will mean revert. It's, but it's a good factor. It has had a strong recent performance. That also means that the quality has become a bit more expensive. So that's then uh, on the outlook an issue. Uh, then you mentioned momentum is not in the Farmer French model. That's a strong factor, very strong evidence everywhere. Plays underreaction. It's difficult to pinpoint because momentum is every year it's different. It's a uh, Value investing, you can easily pinpoint to companies with momentum. It's changing all the time. Farmer friends don't like it because you have to trade a bit more. And it cannot be explained by risk because it's not a style. It's more of a, a trading strategy. And then the last factor is low vol. We will discuss a bit more about that. Also, farmer friends don't recognize that. They are from Chicago, which is more from the rational, efficient market school. Yeah, and low vol can never be <laughs> a risk. You cannot have a risk story for that. At least not in the classical sense, because there is risk in low-vol investing, but it's a totally different risk than what farmer friends talk about. So summarizing that back, you can say there's the good old equity premium, a bit less size, it's a bit, uh, yeah, is, is it there? And then there are the big four, uh, that's quality, value, momentum, and low-vol. That would be sort of the, the summary of 50 years of academic empirical asset pricing research. Some people talk about hundreds of factors, factor zoos. But these are usually variations around these common styles, you could say. To keep it simple, these are sort of the, the big four which we think work besides, of course, the, the mother of all premiums, the equity premium. So then you mentioned not all factors have performed well and some have actually performed really poorly for many years. 
Some of your research refers to a lost decade for some of these traditional Fama French factors. So can you talk a bit about which factors have kind of maybe lost their premiums or performed poorly over the past few years? It also relates to the academic evidence. So are factor premiums also real going forward? Because if you look at the, the Fama French three and five factors and you look at the out-of-sample evidence, it's not that strong. It's positive. Some have done somewhat poorer. And we've done research and we see that exactly the two factors which they didn't include, being low-vol and momentum, they have basically held up pretty strong in the last decade and last two decades, of course, both with their own cycles. And value, especially in the US, has been particularly hard hit. Pure Fama French approach would have been a bit disappointing. Added low-vol and momentum would have been pretty good. Especially outside the US, that's also something to mention. So in emerging markets, in international markets. And finally, there's also the move, uh, what we call uh, the move into signals. So that's using, or beyond Pharma French, that's using quicker trading s- signals, like short-term reversal patterns, seasonal patterns, which also add a lot of value on top of classical Pharma French factors. And these are even more difficult to harvest. Because I think if you look at the development of quant and factor investing, that 20 years ago, it was an academic thing. And then the big institutions started to invest with using quant approaches. And then 10 years ago, the indices came up and then also followed by ETFs and uh, mutual funds. And nowadays, especially in the US, also retail investors have a great opportunity also to have exposure to quant factors without doing it all themselves. Uh, because it's quite, you need technology, data, you need uh, discipline. And if you buy a, uh, an active or a, a, some vehicle, you can get access in many ways to uh, quant strategies. And that has, that's really different than it was 10 or 20 years ago. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. 
It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. Yeah, I want to touch on that because the small cap premium in particular has seemed to have dwindled over the years. And so I read a research paper that said that the premium for small cap stocks was not statistically different from zero. I guess I have two follow-ups on that. I'm just wondering, like you mentioned, as these strategies have become more popular and packaged into ETF products and demand for it from institutional investors, maybe has that driven up the price and kind of that interest in these products and the wider adoption, has that kind of factored into reducing the premium for certain factor premiums like the small cap perhaps? Yeah, that could be an explanation that small caps have become more popular, driving down um, expected returns. Yeah, there are two things to that. One is, first you should think, why would there be a premium? So with small caps, why would small caps earn more return? Because if a big company chunks itself in 10 pieces, do you then get a, a higher expected return simply because they're smaller? But that's something to consider. Usually from the theory of the firm, you would say, oh, if you combine them, you've got scale internal efficiencies so then you create value so that's pure fundamentally driven why would there be a small cap premium that's a tougher one some say it's liquidity if you're less liquid you should have a higher return but it's also not a given if i run a mutual fund and i make it less liquid it's not that the return should be higher because it's less liquid so that's also doubtful your explanation that's the third one that if it was there maybe it's there not anymore that's a good explanation for why the size premium would be smaller. There's only one but, is that the rise of index investing really goes into big caps like S&P 500, MSCI World, basically ignoring the small caps. Small caps have become more cheap over time. The cheapness of value, so if you believe in value investing, it's a bit related to small caps. And there you see that the, yeah, the valuations of small caps is pretty low. So for if you compare Apple with 1,000 small caps, and then you pay basically the same uh, amount. And then you can say, yeah, there's so much opportunities in all those companies with their patents, whatever they do, maybe their materials, their buildings, their personnel. That, yeah, from that perspective, small cap should not be dismissed. I would not be surprised if the next decade small caps handsomely outperform because more of tactical reasons uh, in an uh, environment where you need to be more resilient and also given the valuations. In our quant strategies, which we run, so there's a lot to say about small caps. It's not a simple uh, yes, no. What we do like about small caps is that there are so many of them. Uh, Like you have 10 mega caps, but you have thousands of small caps. And in a quant approach, you need breadth. So you need to go through all those stocks and select the best ones. All our quant strategies tend to end up with the small cap bias, not because we like small caps, but because there's so many of them. And they're not all created equal. So that's why most of the time you see when you look at a quant strategy, they tend to have a small cap bias. And then it's not per se because small caps uh, might be attractive, but more because small caps might become might be uh, cheap. There might be some low-vol uh, small caps. And then simply by being long only, you will have more likelihood of having more small caps. So then it's an outcome. 
I also want to get your thoughts on this because I also read a research paper that said when you filter small caps by growth, low profitability, and then by high asset growth stocks and you remove them from the small cap universe, the size premium does become significant again. Doing this, however, eliminates about 15% of small cap stocks. So it just seems to me like achieving the expected premium from small cap stocks is increasingly challenging over the year, given the additional filters you kind of need to layer onto small cap stocks. So I guess my question is, what do you think is the most optimal way for retail investors to get exposure to the small cap premium? Because if we try and buy just one of the traditional small cap ETFs, small cap value something... It might not be filtering for those additional layers. And then are we just overpaying for this product that we think we're getting a premium when it might be implementing the strategy inefficiently? Yeah, that's a good one. You mentioned the filter. If you go, uh, so I know that that research, it's good. I agree. We come to the same conclusions. If you filter only, you can also take it differently. If you only filter 10 or 15% out, you already get a sizable premium. What happens if you filter 50% out? You get huge premiums because there's there's so much breadth. So in that sense, I wouldn't see the filtering as something negative. And then if you do small caps, you mentioned small value, then you already have your filter that you take out the small expensive stocks because you do small value. So that's a very good filter. The only thing there is that it's one dimension on value. Ideally, you would like to have other filters like volatility, just mentioned, momentum. And possibly quality, so asset growth or profitability. That would be the best way to get access. And I think there are also even some indices out there who offer that kind of uh, strategies. You also mentioned value stocks. So they underperformed growth stocks for much of the past 10 years when looking at traditional metrics like price to book. They've recently recovered a bit over the past two years, but I've heard some argue that this is because using price to book is an outdated value metric. So I'm just wondering, has your approach changed at all over the years in the way that you characterize and define what value companies are? Value comes in many forms. You can have price to book, price to earnings, even price to anything works. That's also, I saw some funny papers on that. Price cash flow, price dividend. What we've always done in our strategies is not pin it down to one exact definition, like this is the best one. We always took value as a multiple dimensional thing approaching the value of company from multiple angles, including uh, yeah, these ones, but also enhanced versions. Because what we find is that, uh, for example, if you do price to book, maybe you do not recognize the investments made on R&D, then maybe that should be added to the book value. And then you should need to adjust certain metrics or dividends. You should also be aware that some companies have to pay dividends like REITs, yeah, that you are aware of that. And for each value variable, you can have adjustments. Price earnings, you can also take a look at expected earnings instead of trailing earnings. What we find is that you do in multiple dimensional and also enhanced value definitions, you get something much better than simply price book or price earnings. Having said that, price book is sort of the kid at school who was thrown in the, uh, was kicked around, bullied. Price to book has been really an easy target for many, how do you say it, quants or market pundits because it's outdated. However, the, the funny thing is, although standalone not that strong, it is a factor which adds value in a value strategy. It's better to repair it than just to throw it away. And then interestingly, Rebecca, is that with book value, you can even argue that the book is usually more traditional firms with assets. 
with inflation rising, uh, if you have any tangibles, so there's lots of about, talk about intangibles, which are important, but in a soaring inflation environment, yeah, having some trucks, having some buildings, having maybe real estate could be good some, uh, something good in a totally different regime if we move from globalization to localization. And also recently, price to book was doing uh, pretty good. However, having said that, it's, you never should go into one extrema. So when it comes to value, we have always had believe in a balanced approach and also taking out some obvious flaws of the simple metrics and enhancing them to a higher level. So you kind of mentioned that you can pretty much use any price multiple that you want when looking at value. Do you have a preferred one that you look at when searching for these companies or do you look at them through a lens of comparing multiple different price multiples? Depends on your purpose. So if you only had to rely on one, then like income yield is shareholder yield, where you take share buybacks, dividend is a very robust one because it's a bit more defensive, which is good. It is also comparable across industries because it's cash in the hand, no dependence on any way accounting standards or or those kind of things. So if if you want to have one, then that's a pretty good one to start with. That's also the one I mentioned in my uh, in my book, which I wrote for uh, mom and pop investors. I wrote it for my dad. In fact, he's not a CFA or PhD, an entrepreneur. And in that book, the value factor which I uh, use is then uh, share buybacks with dividend, which is the shareholder yield or the income yield variable. So then I'm curious to know what your views on technology stocks are, particularly the FANG companies, which are thought of as large growth companies. So following a traditional value-based investment approach, these companies often look very expensive and probably wouldn't make the cut for just using those traditional price-to-book metrics. So I'm wondering what you think about these tech companies from a factor-based investing approach. With uh, factory investing, I mentioned it's good to look at multiple angles and also we control our risks often. So you don't want concentrated portfolios. So when it comes to FANG and uh, large cap growth stocks, usually within technology, there are always stocks which do are not that expensive, but are attractively priced. You can find stocks which don't have a high risk, but a more a medium risk. Profitability is fine, of course. And then we've go to momentum, and that is also has been pretty strong over the past decade. So with a factor approach, you would end up with pretty uh, some exposure to those technology stocks because they score pretty well on several factors some of the time. Overall, you have been somewhat over underweight. Eh? That's the outcome because of what you say value from the valuation perspective. That was really holding uh, some of them back. So that's a pretty nuanced view on uh, technology. And also in our strategies, we see that techno- many technology stocks pop up and uh, come through our screens only when they satisfy our criteria. The good thing about the quant approach is that you only look at stocks from this through the factor lens and do not get emotions on, you know, this is maybe a tech stock or not. You just follow it's data driven, pretty clean and objective. And then we have some relative sector limits, of course, which make sure that you're not going to move into one country or one sector with a huge part of your portfolio. So do you have any examples or that you could walk us through an adjustment that you make, such as like R&D maybe, that kind of shows that it is still a value strategy for these companies? That's one example. So R&D patents uh, can be used. Uh, they're usually an expense and then you can bring them back and, uh, and uh, adjust your value metric. That's what we call an enhanced definition. Another one is carbon emissions. So if you assume that there is a price to it, now 
uh, there's not a tax yet on it. But if it becomes more and you can look at carbon price data, so how much would it cost if there would be a price on it? You can make adjustments to your valuation multiples. So we've done a research on that and then we find that you can take this risk out, which is unpriced. So that means if it's unpriced, it's good because then you still get the full uh, value premium without having these unwanted risks or exposures. So these are two examples of R&D and, uh, and carbon adjustments. Now I want to move on to your low volatility investing strategy. So many investors might think that the only way to increase their returns is by taking on more risk and lower risk means lower returns. And you've done some incredible work on the topic. You published a book titled High Returns from Low Risk, A Remarkable Stock Market Paradox. So can you explain why high risk does not always mean higher returns? And then how can we actually get higher returns from taking less risk? So that's a remarkable paradox or something which puzzles me big time. And uh, also when I started to fund, I told my mother, yeah, we've got a low risk strategy with a high return. And then she was obviously like uh, skeptical, like how can it be? Because we all have learned if you take more risk, you get more return. So this is very exceptional and you shouldn't directly believe me if I say that uh, buying high risk stocks gives you lower returns and if you buy low full stocks, you get higher returns. That's really a puzzle market paradox. Now the reason, so first it's about the evidence. So is this really true? Now the thing I mentioned we've done uh, during my PhD, I did research, it's there in the US. We looked at pre-CRISP data, so really going to the 19th century is there. It's of all the factors out there, but basically the, the most proven and strongest one out there. And also it requires little data. It is simply return volatility. So you can test this without relying on any other data than price data. So the degrees of freedom are limited. It's simple and effective. So the evidence is there. It has extremely high T-stats, especially if you take long samples. And then the question is, what horizon are we talking about? Because if you look at a daily basis, so you're a day trader, then any day the market goes up, then high risk stocks also go up or higher and low risk stocks don't go up. So on a short-term basis, the market is pretty efficient. It's not that on a daily basis, low risk stocks outperform. It depends on where the market is going. The same way on a year, if the market is really up in a year, so 20%, then usually high risk stocks are up more and low risk stocks are up less. So then again, you would say, hey, markets look pretty efficient. The puzzle becomes more and more prominent and visible if you zoom out and out and out and you go to a three-year, five-year, seven-year, ten-year horizon. So a full cycle, which includes bulls and bears. What you then see appearing is that every day, every month, every year, the market is off a little bit because they overpay for risk, they underpay for uh, low risk, meaning that low risk stocks lose less, so they are winning by losing less. That's the catchphrase of low vol investing, winning by losing less. And if you compound it over this three, five, seven years uh, period, then you see suddenly, wow, these low vol stocks are beating the market. I spent my brains on cracking this. So how, how can this be? Why, why would this be the case? Now, one is, of course, the horizon. The longer you look, the bigger it gets. And in academics, they often use a one-month horizon. So on a one-month horizon, the anomaly is not that big. And so the puzzle is smaller when you are looking at the short-term horizon. So for any listener who says, hey, my horizon is longer than one or three or five years, it becomes more and more interesting. If you only are looking for short-term trades, then low vol is less of an uh, appealing alpha. So that's part of the explanation. What's your horizon? 
if it's longer than a month, then it already starts to be very interesting. The second is the risk explanation. I was cracking my brains, like could it be downshot risk, tail risk, uh, lots of econometrics needed. And then the answer was no, not really. That's not really the case. But then I came in the industry and then I learned something else about risk, which we call tracking error, benchmark deviation, active risk. And only the word is tracking error means you're making a mistake while you're just deviating from the market. It's not, a, it's not wrong to take an active view. And there it comes. If you have a stock which hardly moves and gives you every year 10%, I think all the listeners would say, give me something which yields 10 or even for sure, just every month 1%. So that's 12% per year. Then an active manager who has to beat the, ben- the, the benchmark, so S&P 500, MSCI World, this person is looking at the stock and saying, hey, but I think I need to outperform the S&P. So if the S&P is doing 20%, then even 10% is not giving me my outperformance. Second thing is, if a stock doesn't move, the tracking error is extremely high because anytime the market goes up or down, you're just, the stock doesn't move. So from a relative perspective, low-risk stocks are extremely high-risk stocks. And then I found out just after a couple of weeks, so I studied risk, I studied low-hole. I found out that, hey, the way our industry is organized, especially the institutional part of the market, that's becoming bigger and bigger. That's a relative investment world aiming to beat benchmarks and uh, outperform. Well, low-vol investing is not to deliver stable outperformance, but to stable performance. So it's an absolute perspective. From an absolute perspective, you say, this is great. I'm growing my capital and uh, protecting my downside. So capital growth and capital protection. But if you say, I want to beat S&P 500, then it's not a good idea. It is a high tracking error and not so much outperformance. And this is one of the big explanations for why low-level investing works. It's all about comparison. So my mother, uh, I also write in the book, my mother told me, Pim, don't compare too much with others. Because if you compare, you usually become uh, unhappy. Because of you. And that's what we do in our industry. We compare all the time with benchmarks. And again, a bit of comparison is fine. Like how am I doing compared to peers? Eh? That's fine. But if you... Take it as a starting point of your investment procedure where you say, okay, I take the index as a starting point and I need to beat it. Then it becomes a normative thing and often a disappointing thing. So that's, yeah, first we think there's very big effort. It's one of the biggest and strongest anomalies out there. So we do all the data checks, all the scrutinization, what you should do in an academic context. And then why, why does it work? We think it's the compounding, which is often ignored. And then this relative investor's perspective where investors are also overconfident. Because if you want to beat the market, if you want to be the smart guy in the party, yeah, then of course you're not going to buy some boring utility stock because it's not going to make you rich. You want to have this coup. This, you love volatility. You have a volatility preference because you are a good stock picker and that's where you should be. But if you're all above average, which is technically not possible because we are not all above average, uh, about half is above and half is below, it's healthy to be self-confident. So that we all move to this part where you can beat the market, you can beat your friends, your, your day trading friends. And then individually, it might be a rational thing, micro-based, but on a macro level, it doesn't add up. And on a macro level, you can say, okay, when I see this happening, like game theory, I see everybody individually doing this, maybe I should take another standpoint and be skeptical here and say, hey, let's move to the low-vol part. Let's buy this through an ETF or active fund or do it myself. And then you get rewards of this approach where you profit from the other people's overconfidence. 
again, yeah, you need also to have this horizon for at least a year or more to see the benefits of this approach. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. I want to just touch on this quickly. So how would you define what low volatility or low risk is just for our listeners? Are you just saying that is beta less than one or how do you define what a low risk stock is? So this is the most simple way is what you just said, beta below one or below 0.8 or something, because one is, it's always one if it's market-like. So that's very easy. Volatility is uh, more, can be higher, can be lower. But there are rule of thumb is yeah, like a volatility uh, less than 20% is low. If it's above, it's high. But again, that depends more on the market circumstances. Beta is a simple one for retail investors and listeners. So then for our listeners wanting to adopt this strategy and improve their returns by buying these lower risk stocks, 
what else should they be looking for in these companies? I've kind of read a paper, I think it was 2016, Richard Novi Marks that said that low volatility stocks, when you control for size, relative price and profitability, then that anomaly goes away. So are we needing to look for these additional factors in addition to the low volatility one? Yeah, that's a good interpretation of these results. Like I said, you should never go single factor. So I will also not recommend just to simply screen on beta and that's it. You should definitely look at those other things as well, like profitability. So if it's low risk, but it's uh, it's unprofitable, maybe don't do it. If it's low risk, but it's expensive, don't do it. If it's low risk, bad momentum. That's what I would favor. In the book, present a formula based starting from low risk. And then we add income yield as just discussed as a value metric and also price momentum. We call that the conservative formula. It's a bit similar to like Greenblatt's uh, magic formula. There are screeners who apply it. And then you can apply this formula to your screens. And it should be multidimensional for sure. Because if you only do one of them, then you might have some issues as you just discussed. I'm curious on the momentum piece. There's a lot of different ways that investors implement momentum strategies. Are you looking at performance over 12 months or what do you think is the most optimal way to get that momentum premium or benefit from it? The starting point would be like six to 12 months past price return. That's sort of the staple of momentum. It's also pretty good, robust, uh, robust over time. Then you should skip the last month because prices tend to mean revert on a short-term basis. That's already one. Then another thing, yeah, then we, you can expand also the listeners. If you Google, for example, low volume investing and there's Wikipedia on it, there's also lots of background material also for momentum. With momentum, there's lots of expansions. So one is to residualize your momentum. So risk adjusted because some of the past price return is driven by the style. So if all value stocks go up, yeah, then momentum starts to buy value. Maybe that's not what you want. Maybe you want to control for this or when all high beta stocks go up then momentum is buying high beta. Maybe you want to control this. And we call that more stock-specific momentum. You need a bit more technology to do that, but you can take those systematic parts out and then you get a more pure form of momentum. It's company momentum, idiosyncratic momentum, you can call it. There are different names. And that's also a very good one. And also one which crashes less. You're less sensitive to market reversals. That's one example to move on beyond the the classical 6-12 months. But again, for retail investors, also I show in the book, it's pretty good, 6-12 months. Momentum seems to have a different time horizon than the other factor premium. So can you talk a bit about, I guess, how long investors should think about holding these stocks with these factor exposures to get the premium? How long does it typically take for these factor premiums to show up? There's a difference between the the duration you have your stocks in portfolio and about the performance. So momentum is a strategy which tends to give positive results uh, on a five-year basis, but you change the portfolio every six months. So it's a high turnover strategy. With value and low volatility investing, you hold the stocks for about four years. So pretty stable. And there are also those factors tend to work on a five-year basis. But the five is not a given, like value really tested us because there it went in the US to a, like a 10-year basis in which this was flat or negative. If you do a multiple factor, so that's what we believe in, then you shorten this horizon, like the five-year or beyond. You most of the times beat the market with lower risk. Again, this is not the 100% case. So the stocks you hold in portfolio are, are more uh, changing over time. 
I guess that kind of touches on my next question about rebalancing. So these different factors also have different rebalancing assumptions then as well. So momentum, like you mentioned, is shorter, but then the value and size and profitability or quality factors, how often should we think about rebalancing those and what should we be looking for to indicate that we need to rebalance? If you do style factors, so these are more the slower ones. So that's low value quality. One year could do it. If you go to the quicker one, like momentum, you need at least quarterly basis or monthly. It's, therefore, yeah, it's, it's more labor intense to do it. If you combine them, then a quarter uh, is fine, especially if you have momentum in. So also in the conservative formula takes, for example, quarterly horizon. And if you're a professional investor, so what we do for institutions, but also in our mutual funds, that's why we do uh, look at markets at a daily basis and also take trade signals into account. But there you have, of course, the technology and the people and the platform to really do this yeah, basically 24-7 where you can be always be ready to move in or out. If you do it yourself at home uh, with your broker, then a year could work for several or a quarter. You also talked about before how you shouldn't just apply one factor, you should apply multiple, but... Are more factors always better? How many factors should we be looking to get exposed to for each of our picks? And how do you think through that? I mentioned the big four in factors besides the market, which is five. More is not always better because you, if you add like 10 more, which are all momentum, then it gets out of balance. Also, when you add more, you also have to better understand why you're adding them. Like we discussed about size, why, why would it work? So you also need an economic rationale for each factor. So more is certainly not always better because the chance that you throw in something bad because it's spurious or just it's nothing increases if you are uh, basically throwing in too many. Now, when it comes to signals, I also mentioned, so we discussed about factors a lot. I said we also see movements eh, beyond Pharma Friends going more into uh, more next-gen level signals eh, where you use uh, machine learning alternative data. Often those signals are also quicker. <clears throat> and also there we see more is not always better. Many of those very promising signals prove not to work that good. So also there it's good to have a multidimensional view and multiple angles, but also don't overdo it. There's this sweet spot we find between certainly not one, but also certainly not 100 or 50. And then there's semantics to factors versus variables. Uh, because if you, if you talk about value, I call it one. But of course, it consists of like 10, 20 different angles of value. So then it's also semantics. Are we t- yeah, what are we talking about? So when I say four or five, I'm not saying variables, but I'm saying themes or groups of variables. So the last thing I want to ask you is just kind of a practical takeaway for our listeners. I guess, what do you think is the best way that our listeners can get exposure to these factors? One camp of investors might be stock picking or the other camp might be just wanting to get exposure through ETFs. What do you recommend is the best way for the average retail investor? Depends really on the jurisdiction. So many of your listeners are US-based. There you have pretty high sophistication levels. If you look at Europe, it's pretty much the opposite. So institutions are very state-of-the-art, lots of access, while on the retail space is really fragmented among cross countries. So let's go to the US. There are several ways. You can do it yourself where you apply screens and you have to do this systematically. It requires some work. I describe it in my book as well, how you could do this. 
if you say, hey, let's not do my own cooking, let's hire a, a chef, yeah, then you go to a mutual fund, for example. There are different mutual funds out there. Morningstar can help you or other consulting investment consultants. Maybe you're an advisor or maybe you just check out on your on the internet where you post questions like what's a good, uh, you, you can find your way on good mutual funds. There's ETFs and active ETFs coming up, which also have various degrees of uh, factor exposure. Direct indexing coming up. Uh, if you have some money, you can also uh, ask. So it's a hybrid between do-it-yourself and having an advisor doing it. That's pretty advanced in the, in the US. Uh, the same goes to Europe. But there you're a bit more limited to what your broker offers and uh, what you can do. Also trading internationally. In the Netherlands, for example, there are not so many stocks as in the US. So you have to go international. You have some, some more boundaries. And also there in Europe and, and in Asia and the rest of the world, there's access to mutual funds and ETFs. Because maybe that's also something to mention, uh, Rebecca, that sustainability is also some, by some considered as a factor or at least as a preference. A very common, not political view on, e- on sustainability is that if you talk about efficiency, if you treat your people well, uh, like governance or social, then that's good for a firm and stakeholders and shareholders. If you are resource efficient, no matter whether you're progressive or conservative, if you take one barrel of oil and you make lots of products with it, more than a competitor, that's good. So that's good for the planet, but also good for profits. ESG is also moving in with quant. It's also merging there where lots of fascinating things happening, where you can also have a quant approach to ESG in a, yeah, in a, in a shareholder-friendly way. Uh, so also the G part of ESG, so governance. The S part, uh, happy people produce uh, good profits. The E part, being resource efficient, all can add to alpha and also can deliver outperformance. So that's also uh, a good thing to mention here. Touching on the different themes, ESG and sustainability from a quant perspective, I could have a whole nother conversation with you on that one for sure. I guess my one last question, and then I'll let you go, is a lot of our listeners might have heard of smart beta investing strategies. Can you just speak about maybe what the difference is between factor investing and these smart beta products? And are they an efficient way to get exposure to factors? Smart beta is a way of getting exposure to factors, usually through indices, which are then static. So they're defined. So the IP, so the technology in these indices is often static. And it's written down, so it also makes it a bit vulnerable because it's very open. It's pretty transparent, in some cases too transparent. But yes, it's an efficient way. Smart betas give you exposure to, can give you fact, uh, exposure to factors. And of course, some smart beta products are, of course, better than, uh, than others. And it's, again, very good for listeners today. If we, we would have had this talk 10 or 20 years ago, then your final question, what can they do with it? Trading would have been more expensive. Smart beta ETFs wouldn't be there or mutual funds. And now it's really a rich offering and also very competitive. So that means that the best quant strategies and the best factor-based products are available to anyone, in the, especially in the US. And that's, I think, good news, uh, Rebecca. Well, thank you so much, Pim. I want to be mindful of your time today. We covered so much. Before we close out the episode, where can the audience go to connect with you, learn more about you, your work, and everything you do? One way is uh, through LinkedIn. You can follow me there. Then I'm on Twitter called Paradox Investor and the paradox of uh, how can this be, uh, these these high alphas. And also we've got a website to the book. It's also called uh, paradoxinvesting.com. 
if you're native in German, uh, we also have five uh, translations in other languages, including Chinese. So that's multiple language availability. I also speak uh, multiple languages. So if you reach out in uh, English, German, uh, Dutch, will is all fine. Perfect. Thank you so much again, Pam. It was my pleasure. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There's a ton of useful educational resources on there, as well as our TIP finance tool, which is a great tool to help you manage your own stock portfolio. And with that, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.